So if you've been uh, with us in recent weeks, you'll know that we've been making our way through the opening chapters of of Genesis rather slowly, uh, and we've been deliberately uh, taking our time out of a conviction that the opening chapters of Genesis are are really foundational and key uh, to understanding this world in which we live. As, as, as you may know, that the Genesis, the, the opening book of the Bible, is the book of beginnings. It is, it is about origins, and so it, it helps us to answer some of the most basic questions we might ask. Questions like, where did all of this come from? I mean, as we look around, this whole, the whole universe, this world, everything we see around us, where did it all come from? What, why are we here, you, me, and, and, and what's the purpose of it all? And how were things designed and ordered and and structured for the flourishing of creation? And and where and why did it all go so terribly wrong? Because obviously it did. I mean, just look around you and and what do we see? All around us uh, in this world, we see so much hatred and fighting, death and and disease, injustice and oppression. Surely this world is not as it was intended to be. Why is it so? And indeed, it's questions like these that find answers in these early foundational chapters of Genesis. And so it's well worth us taking our time and paying careful attention to them. And and, and that's what we've been attempting to do over these initial weeks in Genesis. And in this morning, as we come to week five in our, our series, it's only now that we come to a consideration of the origin of human beings. It's only now that we we come to see how humans, human beings, fit into this story. We are not the beginning of the story. We're not even the main characters in the story. God is, according to the scriptures. In fact, quite possibly, uh, more than any other generation that has ever lived, you know, our generation, the, the Instagram and TikTok-fueled generation, we maybe more than any other generation that's ever lived might find it difficult to grasp the fact that the story ultimately doesn't begin with us and it doesn't center around us. Now that's not to say that we're, you know, somehow it, we're, we're therefore insignificant or un, unimportant. We are terribly important in the story as we shall see. In fact, we are what we might call the crown of creation. We are those who've been created full of dignity and honor and worth as we shall see at, at this stage in Genesis chapter 2 when we come onto the stage. And not only do we come onto the stage, but we're told what we're here for. And so I want to ask you this question to start with. What is the purpose of life? If you had to write that down in a sentence, you would say, the purpose of human beings existing on planet Earth is dot, dot, dot. What would you say? Why are we here? The The purpose of life is such and such. Now, if you believe that there is a creator God, you, you're probably going to come to the conclusion, as, as we did a few weeks ago, that the whole world has received its existence from God, and therefore God is going to have a great deal to do with the purpose of life. The reason we're here must have something to do with that. If there actually is a God who, who breathed out and spoke all the planets and they came into being as a result... And some of you may have been, you know, uh, fixated on, on different things. Some of you say, you know, the size of the observ- 
observable universe is 93 billion light years. I can barely grasp that idea. Others of you, 10 to the power of 22 stars. I can't believe that. Others say, stuff those weird facts. I'm just amazed by the human eye or, or the heartbeat or, or a sunset. But there's something incredibly extravagant about this kind of God who would have made, who would have made all this stuff. And so most of us, if we believe in God, must come to the conclusion at some stage that the purpose of life has got a great deal to do with God and living for the glory of a God who is that outstanding. And in fact, if we try to live our lives separately from him, we're not going to find fulfillment. But if we do, if we live connected with God going to find life's meaningful. And so I guess most of us, if we're Christians, would, would write, well, the purpose of life has got, to do, uh, has got to have something to do with the glory of God. The glory of God has got to be a major part of our lives. But the question then comes, okay, I agree that we are to live for the glory of God. I, I can see that living for the, the glory of the great creator, God. But what does that actually look like? What am I supposed to do? Because my observation is that a lot of us can live lives feeling like there's a, a great purpose in life and that we might slightly have missed it. Like there's something that we were meant to do, but we haven't really succeeded. You know, that's a common problem for people who are somewhere in their 40s and 50s. That's a question a lot of 40 and 50-something-year-olds ask. We suddenly look in the mirror asking, what is the purpose of this life and have I accomplished it? Because usually 20 and 30-year-olds, you know, back then were still naive enough to think that we're going to do it in the future. But 40 or 50-year-olds look around and go, oh no, I mean, time's running out. And so many of us are going to come to the place, if we haven't already, we're going to come to a time probably where we're confronted with, I think the purpose of life is this, and I'm not sure if I'm doing that. And so it's quite important that as Christians we have an accurate understanding of our purpose for being here. Otherwise, we're all going to feel like failures. So we need to ask, what actually is the purpose of human life? What do we do to accomplish the glory of God, which must be the end of all things? What am I supposed to do with my life to see that happen? And I'm going to suggest that there are four things that God's Word communicates to us in the opening two chapters of Genesis that help us to see what we're supposed to do with our lives. There are four things that are uniquely human that we're supposed to bring into the world with us and spread to the ends of the earth that God might be glorified. And the first one is beauty. Now, you might have thought it would be a bit more spiritual than that, but actually all of these things are spiritual. We bring glory to God doing these ordinary things, and one of them is bringing beauty everywhere. It's called art, creativity. That is a purpose of life, that you and I are here to bring beauty, the beauty of God, into all the earth. The next one is image. Now, of course, this is a major theme in Genesis 1 and 2. We are here to bring the image of God 
to conform human beings to the image of Jesus and fill the earth with him, which we do by having children, and we also do by discipling people and causing them to be conformed, to look like Jesus, so that the world is filled with people who look exactly like their creator. That's how you glorify God. The third thing is order. We bring order and structure to the world and definition and organization to a world that is chaotic. That is a major theme of human purpose. That's why we work. So anybody here who does any work at all, and we'll talk about work uh, a, a bit more la- later on, because it's not just having a job, but anyone who does work, your purpose in doing that is to bring order into a world that's a bit chaotic and a, and a bit of a mess. And then the fourth thing is life. God loves life. He doesn't like nothingness. He doesn't want the world to be just an empty, lifeless blob. He wants to fill it with life and order and structure and beauty. And so he's commissioned us to bring beauty, image, order, and life to the ends of the the earth so that it would overflow to the glory of God. That's one definition of the purpose of life. I mean, there's other ways that we could say that, but that, as you read through the biblical story, is what we're here to do. And to kind of make that case, I just need to go back to the beginning of Genesis 1, and just Genesis 1 and verse 2, just that one verse. Genesis 1 and verse 2 says this. If you have your Bibles, it would be good to, to, to just look at it. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. God created the heavens and the earth, and it was without form and void. And the two Hebrew words for without form and void, which Mike introduced us to last week, are that funny, odd combination of words, tohu vavohu. And, and tohu is the word for without form and without structure. And vohu is the word for empty and without life. And God's word says that at the beginning there was a world that had no structure, no order, no life. And it was empty. The earth was tohu and vohu. Formless and empty. Ugly and lifeless. So it was kind of like uh, one of these we, these boxes, I know you're all familiar with these boxes, right? Uh, they are, you get them, they are totally unformed. And you almost have to have a mechanical engineering degree to figure out how to put them together. But these boxes come unstructured. This box is totally incapable of doing anything. It is without form and empty. It is tohu and vohu before it's been built. Well, what happens, of course, is, is, you know, what do you do? First of all, is you, you bring structure to it and, and, and you form it into, into something which, which is ordered. I, I really can't do it up here, but with a, obviously I'm not a mechanical engineer. Um, it, it's a challenging thing to do. But the box has been formed, but it's still empty. And so not only do you need to bring structure to it, but you need, need to fill it with something. And that's the, that's the way that the earth is created, uh, created at, the, uh, at the beginning. What God does is he forms the earth, which is tohu and vohu, empty and lifeless and without structure and order, and he forms, uh, into something that's, it, it forms it into something that is full of life and full of order. 
So the first three days, he forms it. He brings order. He separates light and dark, water from above from waters below, uh, land and sea. It's all about bringing order and structure. And then in the second three days, he fills it. He fills the, the, the heavens with stars. He fills the sky uh, and the sea with birds and fish. And then he fills the land with, with animals and humans. So the, the first three days, he's, he's sorting out the problem of tohu. He's saying it's formless. Uh, although it's a mess, I'm going to bring structure. I'm going to separate and sort it all out. And then in the next three days, he says, even though it's beautifully ordered, it still doesn't have any life. And so I'm going to bring life into it. And so God filled it, and he filled it, and he brought into it all these living creatures and these animals. In other words, the whole of Genesis 1 is structured around those, these two words, tohu and vohu. He said, I'm fixing those two problems. And then God creates a creature in his own image and says, I now want you to have the same role. Which you might expect. If God created a creature in his own image, you'd expect us as that creature to do the same thing God does. Though it's as if our job is also, as, as people who are like God, to, to go into the world that is kind of messed up at times and bring into that world order and life beauty, and the image of God. And that's exactly what God commissions us to do. If, if, if you turn to verse 28 um, of Genesis 1, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, he's saying, I want you to go and bring life in the image of God everywhere. Be fruitful and multiply. That means have children and fill the earth with people who look like God. That's what that means. The first commandment in the Bible isn't don't eat the nice juicy fruit. The first commandment of the, in the Bible is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then it says, and subdue it and have dominion, which is about bringing order and structure to the world. So the first part is saying, go and fill the earth with life and the image of God. And then it says to subdue and have dominion. It's talking about bringing order and organization to the world. In other words, your role is exactly the same as what God's just been doing in this whole chapter, which is taking something that is tohu and vohu, formless and desolate and without structure in life, and bringing order and beauty and life and image to it. That is, as a human, irrespective of being a Christian or not, just by being, just because you're a human being, that's what your role in life is. That's why you were created, that's your blueprint. In other words, God said, look, I have given the earth form and structure, and now I'm filling it with life. I'm filling it with color. And he, and he injects everything with life and vibrancy, and that is now the role human beings play in the Bible story. That's what you and I have been created to do as well, which I think is pretty awesome. With all that in mind, Genesis 2, verses 4, 4 to 17, and we're already halfway through, so don't worry, I'm not going to be going on for hours, but uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 uh, to 17, bearing in mind uh, this transition from formlessness and lifelessness to order and beauty. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the days that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field 
was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God hadn't caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the, the first is the Pishon. It, it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are, are there. The name of the second uh, river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And you notice, do you notice how relative to chapter 1, he's being very specific in geography, anchoring this in real, you know, as a, a real historical place that we know? It's, it's quite, it stands quite in contrast to chapter 1. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, the, the, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we start with a world that is tohu and vohu, formless, desolate, no life. And, 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 and first God forms it, into order and beauty, and then he fills it with life. And then he commissions human beings bearing his image to govern creation, bringing his beauty, image, order, and life everywhere that the earth might be filled with his glory. And then he makes a garden. And this garden is absolutely beautiful and ordered. It's not tow. It's not a kind of scrubland or a wasteland. It's a, it's a garden. It's it's beautifully looked after. You, you, you can't have a garden without a gardener. It's absolutely stunning. And he then puts a human into it, and the human being bears the image and life of God. And so we've got an ordered, beautiful place into which comes the image and life of God. Beauty, image, order, life, overflowing to the glory of God. And the garden is where God lives. It, this is the place where heaven and earth meet. This is the first temple, if you like. It's like, this is the first place where you walk in and you are in the direct presence of Almighty God. That's what the garden is in, in the biblical story. It's the sanctuary in the wilderness. It's the, the place of beauty in the middle of the rest of creation. Now, now when I hear the word garden, to be honest, I kind of have... This image in my mind of a garden is basically like some of our backyards. You know, you, you, know, you might have a patch of lawn, uh, maybe a vegetable section if you're into that kind of thing, maybe a tree or two, and, and, and then you've got maybe a nice fence or a hedge around it. And that's basically uh, what, what, what I mean or think of when I think of a garden. But that image is totally unlike what's being described here. I mean, just try to think, 
how big this garden is simply by the fact that the river that flows out of it flows and forms four separate rivers, two of which are absolutely uh, massive. The Tigris and the Euphrates are, are still, uh, still there today. It, it, the others have changed their course, and we don't quite know which ones they are, but, but they're absolutely massive rivers, and they're all flowing out of this garden. And you're thinking, this is one very, very large patch of land. I mean, this is like a national park. This is like Yellowstone or Yosemite. It is, it is mountainous and full of trees and rivers. And God says to Adam, have the run of the whole place. Go everywhere you're like. This is yours. This is your place. It's beautiful. And it's filled with order and beauty and life and the image of God. And what I want you to do is extend the garden to the ends of the earth. Go into all the world. Spread the image and beauty of God everywhere. That's what human beings are here to do. And those two activities are still the foundation of human behavior. Human beings still spend most of our lives involved either in work or in family. In other words, we're either involved in spreading the beauty and order of God through work through our work or we're involved in spreading the life and image of God through family. Those are the two main things that human beings do, whether you're, Christ, whether you're Christians or not. And, and that's what it is to be a human being. I mean, you don't find chimpanzees creating art and possums aren't writing poetry. And the reason is we have been given a job to spread beauty and order and image and life in a way that other creatures have not. And so work is about turning formless tohu into something which has got structure and order, and family life is about turning uh, empty, lifeless vohu into something which is filled with a life and the image of God. And we're all called to do that, whether we're Christians or not. That's the challenge and commission for human beings, art. Mission, work, family. That, that's what human beings do. That's the purpose of life, bringing beauty, image, order, and life overflowing to the glory of God. Now, just to be clear, I want to clarify on the word work here, and Mike did a fantastic job on this last week, so if you weren't here, I encourage you to, to go back and listen to it. But it, it's easy for people to mistakenly think that work means paid employment, which it doesn't. It's, it's very important we understand this biblically. I mean, Adam wasn't receiving a salary for what he was doing. Nobody comes up and goes to him, hey, here's your paycheck. I mean, it's just him alone in the garden. And, 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 and so work here is not paid employment. It's important to get that. Because if work is about bringing order and beauty into your environment for the flourishing of everybody, which I think is what work is, then some people who don't get paid do more work than some people who do get paid. Okay, So, for instance, I get paid to work. But my environment is a study. And I walk in, my books are in order because I left them that way. I come in, I sit down, turn on my computer. Order reigns supremely in my study. On the other hand, many young mothers who are at home with young kids all day that, that don't get, they don't get paid. 
And they are in charge of little people whose only purpose in life at the moment, it seems, is to bring disorder and chaos to everything they touch. So she has to work much harder to bring order and beauty into life than, say, I do. In fact, sometimes her whole day can be about trying to bring order and chaos, you know, bring order into the chaos that's reigning. And so she's working just like I am. She's ordering her environment and bringing beauty for the flourishing of everybody. It's also true for retired people. I think a lot of people in our country have got a funny idea about what happens, um, you know, regarding retirement. You know, the you know, what happens at 65 is you stop working. Um, that's kind of the idea. But that's not what happens at all, biblically. At 65, you just stop getting paid. That's totally different. And there are retired people in here who are wonderful examples of what that looks like. You still work. You're not paid for any of it. But you're still working, bringing order and beauty to your environment. And that's part of the commission of being a human being. We do that six days out of seven because that's what God did. But that's what it is to be human. So, so you may be unemployed, retired, may not receive a salary. That's fine. But if you're not working, then you're probably going to find yourself very unfulfilled over the long period of time. So we want to make sure that when we retire or whatever station of life that we might be in, that we're still being productive, we're still working. And many, as I say, many people here are a wonderful example of that. Similarly, if, if work isn't just about paid employment, family isn't just about being married and having children. Because in the scriptures it says that single people are, quote, even better at bringing people into the Family of God, the married people. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 7. In Isaiah, ch childless women have even more children than the woman who's married. Uh, in Isaiah 56, it says that eunuchs, in other words, people who physically can't have children, have a name even better than sons and daughters in the people of God. In other words, being single doesn't mean that we're not part of this, this family. I've preached on this before because it's important. It's so important to see that our role as bringing the image and life of God doesn't depend on whether or not we're married and having children. The Apostle Paul would be a great example of this. I, I mean, because of him, a fair few people more were added to the family of God than because of me. Right? As a single man. And so bringing beauty and the image and order and the life of God into creation is part of what it is to be a human being. That's the purpose of life. So the question that occurs is, if that's what we're here to do, why are so many people unhappy? If people in Santa Rosa are pretty much having families and having jobs, why are they not fulfilled in the depths of their being by this activity? And the reason is because, well, for a full explanation, we have to wait until we see what happens in Genesis 3. But the reason has something to do with the tree that we just read about in verse 17. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
You see, it's possible to work and have children and create art and keep gardens and yet do all of those things desiring to glorify ourselves and not God. That's possible. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what most people in Santa Rosa today are doing. They're, they're going around, they're maybe doing their art and they're rearing their children and they're working hard, but they're not doing it to the glory of God. And so there's something fundamentally unfulfilling about it. And our purpose in life is to glorify God first and foremost by doing these things to His glory. And so if we don't glorify God in these things, it won't feel like we're living in the meaning of life because we're not. That's not, that's not what life is, is for. It's to, the, it's, it's, it's to glorify God by beauty, image, order, and life. Now I know a lot of people struggle uh, with this tree and why it's there. I imagine a lot of people have read this chapter and sort of think, yeah, this seems so unfair. It's, it's this beautiful garden. I, you know, I now see that it's not some postage stamp you know, size backyard, but it's the size of Yosemite or Yellowstone, and people are wandering through it and enjoying how beautiful it is. So why does there have to be the tree in it? it is it like God sort of went, well, well, it's a perfect world. I shall throw a banana skin into the middle and see if they slip on it. Why did God have to do it? And I think some of us read the story that way. And a lot of us see God's commandment about the tree being like that. It's like, here's this beautiful world. There's just one catch. And I know you're going to muck it up. And God's just waiting for us to slip on the banana peel and make a mess of things. Listen, if you see the tree like that, you will really struggle with the nature of God. That's not what the, the Bible reveals about God's character at all. But we need to understand that there are three different types of ban or prohibition uh, in the world. And some of us will, will misread this tree and think that it's one of them when it's actually not. And, and the most common type um, that we encounter is, you know, the kind of the proverbial keep off the grass type ban. It's a legal ban. It's, it's I'm making a rule which I'm telling you because I'm more powerful than you. I'm going to tell you what you can and cannot do. Uh, you're allowed to do these things and you're not allowed to do those things. And if you do them, then bad things will happen. In other words, it's a ban enforced by punishment. So trespassing is forbidden, or skateboarding prohibited. You know, the, 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 I mean, the world won't fall apart if you skateboard on the sidewalk, but it says skateboarding prohibited, so we don't do it, because we're worried about being punished. You keep the rule to avoid offending the authorities. That's most laws in our country. They work that way. But that is not, emphatically, that is not the kind of rule that God has placed in the garden. It's not a, a random, no skateboarding allowed sign. So there are legal rules. And then secondly, there are consequential rules, which are don't do this because if you do, this will happen to you, you know, because of the type of thing that it is. So for instance, don't touch the live wire. Uh, I mean, that's not an arbitrary rule. That's not a legal rule. That's a consequential rule. It's, it's trying to protect you. It's a warning because if you do touch the live wire, you'll electrocute yourself. Don't feed the bears is a consequential rule because if you feed the bears, you may end up feeding them rather more than you had hoped to have fed them. It's for your protection that the, that the, that the consequential rules exist. 
You see the difference between that and no skateboarding allowed. You, you keep the rule not for fear of punishment, but for, but for fear of the outcome of the thing that you're doing. Those are consequential rules. If you do this, something in the fact of you doing it will be bad for you. But the third type of rule, and the type of rule that God sets up here in Eden, is a relational rule, which is a type of rule that you keep because you desperately want to avoid hurting the other person, and you know your relationship will suffer if you don't. I mean, just think of maybe even the kind of rules that you have in your relationships, in your marriage, uh, where you just don't do something. It doesn't have a terrible consequence in, in itself, and it's not against the law. You just don't do it because you know it upsets the other person. So, for instance, maybe your wife says to you, you know, don't patronize me in public. I really hate that. You do that sometimes. You're making light of me, and you're doing it in a way that makes me feel small. Please don't do that. And you have to work really hard not to do that out of respect for her. It's not like, it's not like there'll be flashing sirens, and the police will arrive, and it's not like you're going to electrocute yourself or get your arm eaten by a bear. You just don't do it because you love her, and you're trying to make sure that nothing you do disrespects her. And then let's take perhaps a, a more intense one. Please don't sleep with anybody else. That's a relational rule. It's not against the law. And it doesn't in itself cause you to die. It doesn't in itself actually cause you to get divorced. But it's the kind of rule that you keep out of a desperate desire not to hurt someone else. And to be faithful to your covenant with God. That's a relational rule. And that is the kind of rule God sets up here. He says, listen, I don't want you to have the knowledge of good and evil. It's not about the tree. I made a whole world full of trees. I just invented the berry. You can, you can eat whatever you want. I love trees. I, I, I love fruit. I love beauty. I want you to spread this beauty to the whole earth. But please, please don't find out what evil is like. Because it will break my heart and it will ruin our relationship. It's like the, the, the man just went around saying, I want the knowledge of what my wife is like. And what this other woman is like so I can compare them. You can imagine how your wife would feel about that. Or invert it if you're a woman. Just imagine. And that's what Adam does. And that's what Eve does. They say, I know that God doesn't want me to. But I want to know. Let's have a little bit of evil as well as good. And God says, that's heartbreaking. That's ruined our relationship because it's brought evil into a perfect creation. How could you do that? And we'll look more at that in coming weeks. So we depend for our meaning in life on living for the glory of God. And the reason why so many people are unhappy is we just don't realize that our lives are here to bring beauty, image, order, and life to the glory of God. We don't live that way. Instead, we live for our own glory. We live eating from whatever tree we want and saying, yeah, let's bring evil in. I don't care. And as a result, we have come way off the rails and it's all gone badly, badly wrong. So the purpose of life is to fill the earth with God's beauty, image, order, and life so that it overflows 
with God's glory. We decided to reject God's commission. We said, no, stuff that. I'm going to go my own way. And ever since that, we have been wandering and stumbling around going, what is wrong? Why does suffering happen? Why do bad things happen? How do we improve this world we're in? Because we don't understand what happened in the past. And the wonder of the biblical story is that God came to fix this mess himself and said, I'm going to set you straight. You were created to live for this. You didn't. And, we've all, and we all would have done what Adam and Eve did. And God said, I want to come and make it right. I'm going to come personally, roll up my sleeves, come down and restore the image and life of God that's been spoiled. I'm going to bring order and beauty back to the creation that I so lovingly fashioned all those years ago. I'm going to come as a Jewish carpenter called Jesus of Nazareth who will become ugly so that you can become beautiful. I'm going to let myself be beaten and destroyed so that you can have beauty, the beauty that I so desperately want for human beings and for my creation. And I'm going to come as the image of the invisible God so that you can see what God looks like. And then I'm going to send my spirit to conform you into that image as well so that you can look like God as well. I mean, it's a mind-blowing gospel. And that rescue plan was totally and utterly successful. Because if you fast forward to the end of the story, you find this massive multitude of people filling the earth, bearing God's image, and singing his praises to his glory. That's where Revelation ends. You jump from Genesis to Revelation, you think, wow, what has happened here to fix this awful mess? We end, up, we end up with this terrible story in the beginning and it looked like there was never going to be beauty, image, order in life anywhere and somehow the whole cosmos is now filled with the presence of God, the life of God pulsing through it. This life is so powerful, it, it overcomes death itself. How does that work? It's beautiful, it's so, so stunning. Everything about this new creation is utterly perfect in appearance. And there, and there we are left staring open mouth at it and saying, how does this happen? And then we read Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river. Remember the rivers that flowed through the garden? The river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, which is Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. You think God fixed it. He came and he sorted it all out. Our purpose was to bring beauty, image, order, and life overflowing to the glory of God. We bungled it, but God came and fixed it. And the purpose of human beings is now to live in line with what God has accomplished and is accomplishing through the human race and through those people that he's called to himself to say, you guys go fill the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity.